The second reading this morning is Revelation chapter 1. I will read verses 9 through 20. Hear the word of God. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the isle called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. You've gathered us here in your providential care. You have rounded us up from many places this morning. We pray that as we gather here in this sanctuary to study your word and to sing your praises, we pray that you would be present with us. Lord, you promise that wherever two or more are gathered in your name that you would be in our midst and so we welcome you here this day we pray as well that you would send us your holy spirit so that as we meditate on your word uh, that our hearts and minds would be illuminated and opened uh, to what it is that you need to say to us this morning lord i pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight because you are our rock and our redeemer amen amen by the way some of you were not here at uh at the uh, nine o'clock service Uh, we had two baptisms at the nine o'clock service one was a two-year-old girl um and so she was she was still small enough to carry 
which was nice, right? So, uh, so I had the privilege of baptizing her. Believe it or not, the, the cattle trough was here, and it, it, it got moved away that quickly. Uh, Pastor Bruno uh, uh, baptized a young man. Uh, we received a total of eight new members um, uh, into the church this morning, which was a, which was a great a joy and a great privilege. Uh, if you are here this morning and sense that God is calling you to be joined to this church, or if you need to be baptized, uh, you should come speak with me, and we can make those things happen. Uh, this morning I want to preach in a different way from my usual way. This morning I want to walk through the 11 verses from our reading uh, from the book of Revelation uh, verse by verse. Usually when I preach there's one main theme that uh, all of the verses are about and then I preach on that one theme. But because Revelation is such a special book because it is more complex than uh, other books in the Bible, and because we are now just really starting the book, I thought it would be helpful to work our way carefully through these 11 verses this morning. This is our third sermon in our series on the book of Revelation. In the past two weeks, Pastor Bruno and I preached the prologue and the opening greeting of this book. This book, by the way, uh, was written as a letter, and then it was sent to the seven churches in Asia. And so there are certain uh, formulas uh, that are at the beginning of any of these ancient letters. Uh, but now, today, we really enter into the body of this book of Revelation. In your bulletins, we have provided for you the entire text in the ESV translation, uh, and I've given you wide margins, so if you want to take notes, you can follow along. Uh, through, the, through the text. So let's begin uh, with the first verse. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John, of course, is an apostle. He's the last of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, the Bible calls him the disciple whom Jesus loved. But notice here, uh, at the beginning of this letter, he doesn't toot his own horn. He doesn't talk about his credentials or his authority as a bishop over these several churches. Instead, he says, I'm your brother and your partner. There is a kind of radical equality in the kingdom of God. Old hierarchical distinctions are swept aside. In the kingdom of God, the last will be first and the first will be last. In the kingdom of God, there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Greek nor Jew. Paul says we are all one in Christ Jesus. And so John, writing to the churches in Asia, calls all of these people his brothers and his sisters. And notice that he says that he is also their partner. A partner is a person who shares equally with you in your circumstances, whether those circumstances are good or bad. Think of two oxen that are tied together by a common yoke. Both of those oxen pull the same load. When it rains on one, it rains on the other. When one gets fed, the other eats as well. John is the partner of the people that he's writing to, and then he mentions three aspects of that partnership. 
He says, I am your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Three things, tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. All three of these things belong to us as Christians. We will obtain the kingdom of God one day, but before that day comes, we will face trials and tribulations, and we will meet those tests of faith with patient endurance. The people who first heard or first read the book of Revelation were facing a tribulation that we can't imagine. Scholars believe that one in seven Christians in the first century were martyred for their faith. Think about that, one in seven. One, two, three, four, five, six. Sorry, Dr. Foster. One, two, three, four, five, six. Sorry, angel. One, two, three. One in seven. Everybody, every Christian knew someone who had been killed for their faith uh, in those days. They were crucified. They were lit on fire. They were sawn in two. They were fed to wild animals. They were killed for sports in arenas while paying customers cheered. And a major theme of this book, we're going to see this term come up again and again throughout the book of Revelation, is patient endurance. Patient endurance. Yes, this is bad, God is saying. But if we hold on to the end, we will receive the crown of glory and it's all going to be worth it. The book of Revelation was a pep talk for Christians who were suffering a terrible persecution. Part of the encouragement of this book is that it reveals how it's all going to turn out in the end. In the end, Christ wins. In the end, the church is redeemed. In the end, the church enters into unimaginable glory. And knowing that end was an encouragement to those who were in the middle of the fight. In the early days of the Second World War, countries that had been overrun by the Germans or by the Japanese did not know how things would turn out. If they became hopeless, then the battle would have been lost. And so it's good to know how things are going to turn out in the end. The devil is always telling us that we're going to lose. The devil is always telling you that you're stuck and that you're never going to change. The devil is always telling you that you might as well quit right now because there's no hope for you. But the devil is a liar. And so we hold on to the unshakable, unshakable hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Jesus defeated death and he defeated the devil. And because we are yoked to Jesus by our faith in his saving blood, Christ's victory is our victory as well. And so God brings this vision of the future to the Apostle John and he tells him to write it down and to share it with the church. So that in times of tribulation, they will have the patient endurance that they need. And one day soon, they will lay hold of the kingdom of God. In John's day, there were trials and tribulations for the church. And the church in all ages has suffered trials and tribulations. Sometimes more, sometimes less. Tertullian... A North African theologian born about 60 years after the book of Revelation was written, he said, no one can obtain the kingdom of heaven 
without first passing through tribulation. But pass through it, we will, with Jesus and with patient endurance. The next verse reads, well, the next two verses read, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So this is where it begins. This is where uh, the prophecy and the visions begin. This is uh, the beginning of the strange part of the book of Revelation. Up to this point, everything has been a nice little sermon. It's been a theological discourse. It's been a friendly letter. All of that was very normal. But now we reach the place where God comes across the gulf that normally separates us and he makes some kind of direct contact with the Apostle John. This is a moment when the hairs on the back of your neck begin to rise. And when John says, I heard behind me a loud voice, we should recognize that this is what the medical community would call an auditory hallucination. John is hearing voices. But notice that John is not unaware that this is something strange. That, what's, that he's not unaware of what's going on. He's aware of his, let's call it his natural surroundings. But then into that normal space comes this voice which is supernatural. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That's how John sets the stage. Which is to say, it's a Sunday and he's worshiping. He's not just in church but he's in church and he's in the spirit. And I hope you know the difference. Because sometimes people show up to church and they're never in the spirit. I hope you've all had that experience of going to church and having it be something more than just a concert or a lecture that you're attending or observing neutrally from a distance. Sometimes we do come to church and we feel God and we hear his voice, and I don't mean this auditory hallucination thing. That's something different. There are times in church when we are in the spirit, when we are doing what we should be doing, when we experience a sweet communion with God. And his spirit will speak to us. We feel his love for us, and we pour out our hearts to him, and something wonderful happens, and we'll know that we've been to church that day. Now, maybe Pentecostals are better at this, than Presbyterians. But whatever the case may be, on this particular Sunday, John was in the Spirit while he was in church worshiping God. And then in the middle of that, in a way that was not normal for even that real kind of worship experience, in the midst of that moment when he's in the Spirit worshiping God, he also then hears a voice. And it's not a still small voice. It's a big, fat, loud voice like a trumpet. Now, some of you have never been up here on the chancel during the musical part of our worship service. I encourage you to do that someday. You need to join the choir to do that. But when Susan Clark opens up all of the pipes on the organ and you're sitting up here singing with the hymns, it is really loud up here. It's thrilling, actually. John hears a loud, clear voice. He's in worship. I don't know what he's doing in worship, but he's in a worship service. And then he hears a voice that's somehow not in this worship service. This is a, this is a supernatural experience that he's having. 
Okay? This is more than just hearing the voice of the preacher or feeling the spirit moving inside of you. He hears a voice. He has an auditory hallucination and the voice says to him, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then everything that we're going to read in the book of Revelation was written in, in response to that command. Verse 12. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. So first, John has an auditory hallucination. He's hearing voices. And now he turns and he also has a visual hallucination. He's seeing stuff that's just not in the room, okay, that other people in the room are not seeing. Let me talk for just a minute about the literary features of prophecy and of the apocalyptic genre. Scholars agree that the book of Revelation is an amalgamation of different biblical genres. That's part of the reason we have such a wide range of interpretations of this book, because each literary genre has its own rules. Think for a minute about an ordinary newspaper. In an ordinary newspaper, in a single issue of an ordinary newspaper, there are simultaneously a variety of different literary genres being presented to you simultaneously. On the front page, you have breaking news, reporting events as they've happened. Those stories are written according to a very strict set of rules. On the op- in the op-ed section, you have editorials presenting opinions about public issues. Those are written in a very different way. On the sports page, You have accounts of games and teams, and those articles are written in a different style as well. And then there are the comics, which are a whole other thing. If you read the sports page the way you read the front page, you will misunderstand the sports page. If you read the editorial page the way you read the funnies, you will miss the meaning. Let me give you an example. Last month... I read an article that said this, and I quote, The Dallas Cowboys are on fire, but most NFL teams stink right now. A person who ignores the genre might wonder, well, gosh, why doesn't somebody get a fire extinguisher so those men don't get killed? Or maybe those other teams need to take a shower or wash their uniforms. We need to understand the genre that we're reading. The same words in different genres produce different meanings. And so when we read the Bible, we have to take into account the genre of the passage that we're reading. We do not read the Song of Solomon the same way we read 1 Kings, for example. Prophetic and apocalyptic literature, and Revelation is an example of prophetic and apocalyptic literature, often uses symbolic imagery. And the book of Revelation is full of images. In Revelation 1.12, we get our very first example. John says, on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And then in verse 20, Jesus interprets this image for us, since of course we're just beginning students and we don't know how to do it yet. Jesus says the seven lampstands are seven churches. Okay, so you have an image and then you have the interpretation of the image. 
As we work our way through the book of Revelation, we will encounter symbolic language and imagery, and we will need to make a kind of translation of what that image means into a more literal way of understanding. But here is the more complicated problem. At the same time that we are making that translation from image into something more literal, we still must hold on to the image because the image is richer and more complex than any one-for-one exchange that we might find in a cryptographic cracking of a code. Think about, we should, rather than reading Revelation like a cryptographic puzzle, we should read it also like poetry. Think about how we read poetry. Some of you remember this poem from your high school years, a poem by Robert Frost called Nothing Gold Can Stay. It goes this way. Nature's first green is gold. Her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief, so dawn goes down today. Nothing gold can stay. So what's the poem about? What does it mean? Well, it says something about how things start out golden or beautiful or perfect, like Eden. But then with the passage of time, the luster of the gold is lost and Eden sinks to grief. Maybe this is something about the beauty of youth. Maybe this is something about the wonder of first love. Maybe this is something about a longing after a lost golden age. That might be the correct interpretation. But we shortchange this poem if we fail to recognize its literal reading as well. If we fail to recognize that in the spring, when the maple puts out its leaves, they actually do come out yellow before they're green. Frost is not using the word gold metaphorically entirely. He's also speaking literally. The leaves start yellow, and then they mature into green. And on that maple, the flowers emerge before the leaves do, covering your car with a dusting of yellow pollen. Frost's images are literally true, but they operate simultaneously at a second symbolic level as well giving us a comment about human longing. We need to keep both of those things going at the same time, the literal and the symbolic. When we interpret the images of the book of Revelation, I would encourage you to read them more like a poem than like a cryptograph. I think you will find the book more beautiful and more meaningful if you do. And sometimes we will encounter images, it's just by way of warning, that we can't crack. Like a, like a cryptographer. And we will need to be content with the fact that we can't crack them. So in this case, the churches are the lampstands, or the lampstands are the churches, and we can think about all the ways in which the lampstands bring light to the darkened world. Verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around it, was one with a in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The son of man is the name that Jesus most often used for himself. 
This is language that he borrows from the book of Daniel if you had attended. By the way, you need to attend the Sunday school class, the adult Sunday school class. We, we went over this whole thing in the adult Sunday school class. Uh, but one of the things we were able to take a look at was the, the section in the book of Daniel uh, that is being quoted here in the book of Revelation. Um, the long robe um, and the golden sash seem to indicate that, that this person is a priest. And so here we have Jesus in the midst of the churches wearing his priestly garments. Next verse. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fi- like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, finished, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. God the Father is often portrayed with long, flowing white hair. At least that's how he appears on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. The white hair is a symbol of age. God the Father is also called in the book of Daniel the Ancient of Days. He was not a new God. He's a very old God, a very, very old God. And old men we know have white hair. That's the image. But here is Jesus. And Jesus is being presented as the one with white hair. Now, that's not an image that I've ever seen before. All the pictures of Jesus, I recall, show him with either brown hair or black hair. But John sees him, in this case, with white hair, perhaps as a symbol of the fact that he and the Ancient of Days are one, that he is truly ancient. His eyes were like fire. In other words, there was light shining out of his eyes. Now, we moderns understand the eyes to be passive receptors of light, kind of antennas that capture the light that's radiating out there. But the ancients had a different view of the eyeball. They thought of the eye as sending out a beam. Okay, and you can see this actually in medieval paintings. They call it the eye beam. A little, a little line goes from your eye, and, and I could like see you. Kind of, this is kind of like the way Superman sees things. His little beam goes out from his eye. Okay, x-ray vision. This was the, the eyes were like fire. The burnished bronze refined in fire may have made his feet very hard and impenetrable. It's a very different image from the soft feet that would have been pierced by nails on the cross. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. This is an ancient image for a really loud noise. They didn't have pipe organs in those days, but a waterfall, when you stand next to it, can be quite deafening. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So what are the stars? Well, we've already heard about them. Whatever they are, he has them in his right hand. He has them, he owns them, he holds them, he controls them. They are his. And the two-edged sword, of course, is the word of God, which cuts to the quick, which penetrates and reveals the hearts of men. And his face was shining. One of the persistent images of the glorified body, of the body that has been in contact with heaven, is that it glows. I think this may be a case where we're not dealing with an image anymore, but that we're dealing with an actual literal description. Remember Moses, when he came down from Mount Sinai, he had a glowing face. He scared the Israelites and they asked him to wear a veil. Remember Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's glowing brightly. 
I think in this case we're not dealing with a literary symbolic image. I think we're simply dealing with a supernatural reality that our glorified bodies will in some way be glowing. Verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. All the reports of encounters with heavenly beings indicate that we humans are struck with terror when we see them. If you see an angel, it's not, mm, it's not a comforting thing to see. People who see angels are terrified. And so John sees Jesus fully glorified. He's got his heavenly body on and he falls down in front of him as if he's dead. Now keep in mind, John already knew Jesus. John had spent three years with Jesus. This is not his first encounter with Jesus. But John is seeing Jesus in a way that he never saw him before. When we see Jesus, we're going to be amazed. And Jesus' response is the same as the response of angels who came to terrified humans. Don't be afraid. And then Jesus begins to say who he is. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. When Jesus says, I am the first and the last, he takes for himself the name that God the Father has just used for himself. Jesus is asserting his full divinity. But he, like the other members of the Trinity, unlike the other members of the Trinity, Jesus also had the experience of dying and then being resurrected. And now he's got the keys or the power of death and Hades in his hand. They are like the seven stars in his hand. They are within his power. He has control even over death and Hades. This is a powerful resurrected Savior that we're meeting here. Verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this revelation, after this. The command to write falls into three categories. The first category is write about the things that you've seen. The second category is write about things that are presently. And the third category is write about things that are going to take place after this. The book of Revelation is not entirely about the future. Part of the book of Revelation is about things that are now in the past. Part of it is about what John in the first century saw. Another part about, is about what, John, what was happening in John's neighborhood at the time that he's writing, which is now past for us. And a third part is about the future, things which are still to come. Some people have made the mistake in interpreting the book of Revelation because they put everything into the future. Some people have made the mistake in interpreting the book of Revelation because they put everything into the past. This book is really about the past, the present, and the future. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is one of those cases where Jesus himself gives the interpretation of the image. 
We already talked about the churches, which are the seven golden lampstands, but then there are the seven stars, which are the seven angels or the seven messengers of the seven churches. The word uh, in Greek for angel is the same as for messenger. It can be a human messenger or could be a, or could be a heavenly messenger. This is a case where there are a variety of interpretations, and I don't think we need to hold to any one of them too tightly. One idea is that the seven stars are the seven messengers who will actually read this letter in the seven churches. Remember, John writes this thing out, copies are made, and then messengers take it to the seven cities. And that person would have gotten there and he would have stood up in front of the congregation and read the book of Revelation. Okay, we're going to do this, by the way. One of these nights we're going to gather here and we're going to read the whole book of Revelation. We're going to do it the way it happened uh, when, when it first came around. It, 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 I think it's going to be a wonderful experience. Those people could be called angels. Okay, they're, they're messengers. That's one possibility. Another view is, is that eat, to each church is assigned a heavenly angel, a guardian angel, and that these angels are in the hands or the control of Jesus himself. Now, I like this idea. And if the seven churches that John is writing to had seven guardian angels, I think we, I think we have one too. I don't know if you've thought about that. Okay? This church was constituted at the command of Jesus. Okay, I, I hope you understand the Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church is not a human creation. We were created by the Spirit of God in this place. Things happened. People were pulled together. I don't see any reason to not believe that we have a guardian angel. Possible. So let me close. One day soon... We will see Jesus. There are basically two options. You'll see Jesus if you get hit by a bus and die. One way you can see Jesus. Another way you can see Jesus is it's time for Jesus to return and he appears in clouds of glory and the whole world is going to see him. But either case, one day soon, each one of us will see Jesus and we have to ask ourselves the question, are we ready for that meeting? The day will come when we're going to see him. Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He came into this world to open up a way. He called it a narrow way that we could be in connection, in communion with God, with God the Father. In Revelation 3, 20 and 21, a very familiar passage, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. If we hear this day the voice of Jesus, we should open the door to him. Each person who receives who hears the voice of Jesus and, and opens the door to Jesus, each person who receives Jesus into his life will be more than a conqueror in all of the trials and the tribulations in this life. And one day, that individual will sit 
with Jesus on, in the throne to rule the world. The invitation that is made to us this day is if we hear the voice of Jesus calling to us, if we hear him knocking, let us open. Let us pray. Father God, you are God and you loved us and you sent your son into this world. Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus to speak to John on the island of Patmos. And I pray that as we read John's revelation, that that we would learn more about you and love you more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.